Hi everyone, my name is Blair Sinta. How are you? This is the first in a series of interviews I've done with uh, some drumming recording friends. Uh, this one is with Brendan Buckley. Brendan and I have known each other for about 20 years now. And uh, he lives fairly close to me and he's a great uh, drummer in general. He has a home studio like I do. He works a lot out of there. And I thought it would be interesting to learn some processes uh, that, that Brendan uses, um, some of his history of recording, how he got started. Um, everyone has, seems to have uh, different ways how they, how, they, how they got into this um, and why. Brendan and I have shared a lot of gigs over the years, road gigs. We actually uh, were in the same band at different times at a certain period here in L.A. And he's been Shakira's drummer for well over 25 years, maybe 25 years, and he's been the only drummer. Um, I'm proud to say that uh, I was able to sit in and, and uh, do, some, do some fake drumming with Shakira one time, thanks to Brendan. And uh, there was lots of fire around. That was fun. <laughs> but this is a really, uh, I think it's a really good conversation to get inside Brendan's head and see how he gets a lot of these great drum sounds and records for artists around the world throughout his home studio from here in Los Angeles. So were you actually recording yourself in Miami? Oh, sure. But we, we, we've started, right? Well, I think we just started, yeah. <laughs> Yes, in Miami, definitely. Uh, but even, I would say, even when I was in high school in New Jersey, I would set up uh, like an SM58 over my drum set and, and play into a four-track recorder. Okay. And, and like play with my high school band where the bassist would record on one track and guitarist record another. And Right. So you were I, running that? Like you, you were the guy that was doing that? It wasn't like the guitar player or whatever? I think we all learned how to do it. Yeah. Everyone learned how to do it. Like the whole idea, I mean, the, the prior to that recording was you set up a boom box in your garage and everyone just plays and you push record on a cassette. Yeah. And then the next level was, you know what you can do? They have these cassette machines where you can layer. Right. Like, really? They're called four tracks and you can do like four parts. Right. And apparently that's how the Beatles did their records. So uh, for some reason, I would get these like you would get these little Tascam Porta studios. And I imagine that that's what the Beatles used to make their records. Right. <laughs> you see their actual four track machines are, you know, totally different thing. But yeah, when I was in high school, it just it did. It just seemed it didn't seem like you're. You're you're making a record and it's, it was just a way for you to record music with your buddies, you know, and they had these super affordable four track machines. And that's really my entrance into both recording drums and producing was through that stuff. Right. It's funny. You're, you're totally jogging by memory because I had totally forgotten about doing the same thing with my bands, but I never, I, I was never the guy with the four track, but then the first band I was in, or really the band I was in in high school, uh, there were some guys that were older than me. One guy had an older brother and they literally built a studio in a loft in Saline, Michigan. And I was in there, you know, when I was 16 and we were recording songs and it was like, you know, full on a board. And I remember him showing me like, this is what a compressor can do. And they had recorded a shaker and it was ducking in and out with the kick and snare. Mm -hmm. And I was, he kept trying to explain it to me. And I was like, like, what? I don't, I don't get why it, I still don't understand why it's doing that, mm -hmm. but I, it's almost like I had forgotten about that early time of recording. Mm -hmm. 
me. Like I was like, for me, it goes back to like 1999. I was like, wait, I want to start to record myself. It's like, no, there were actually four tracks and, you know. Yeah, those were our training wheels. Yeah, exactly. You learn things like, I mean, when you learn how to bounce, uh, you would learn things like, okay, now I want to do like some shaker and tambourine and now I can put this on there, but you bounce it and you don't want, you know, one of the volumes to be way loud because you can't ever go back. Right. You really make sure the volumes are correct. Or you learn things like overdubbing, for instance, um, you know, what, what if the, the acoustic guitarist lays his part first and then you're supposed to play drums to that. That's really difficult. It, right. without a click track that's really difficult so you would say hey why don't we do the drum part first right. and then we'll do the bass and guitar to that and right. like in high school these are things you're discovering through trial and error right like right. um like things like well this this is the section where the drums drop out and so maybe you should play like a hi-hat or something so we can keep some time right you know these, it's basic stuff but you learn these things through um experimenting with those four tracks back then Right. And, and the idea of going back to correct anything was not even uh, on the table. Yeah. You had to start over again. Just did it. You just yeah. did a, a whole other version. Yeah. We're going to play the song now. And here it is. Like, should we play the whole thing again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I would say like, and then, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but when I was in Miami and I was, I was recording a lot more in studios, but the studio still had two inch reel to reel tapes which at the time, maybe you can fit, you know, two, depending on the quality you're using, the, uh, the speed of the machine, you can fit maybe two songs on a reel or something. Right. So then you really had, and reels costed money, the tape. Right. So right. then you had to decide when you did one song and you're like, I think I could do it better. And then they say, well, is, can you do it better? Like, should we record over the last one? Because yeah. <laughs> we're not going to do... 18 takes we're going to go with one take just whichever one you think and you had to decide yourself as the drummer am i willing to record over that last take to do a new one or is the last one good enough and uh was that part of the college curriculum you were recording or that was outside doing outside work but you but you were living there well, good, good good question yeah we did have at the university of miami the school i went to we did have a music engineering department. So there were guys who were going and studying to be engineers. Right. And what they would do is they would pull musicians from the school of music into the studio on these late night sessions from like midnight to six in the morning. Mm -hmm. And we would practice. They'd say like either come up with some originals or uh, play some covers. And, you know, we did get a lot of experience cause that, it was a real studio and, um, and people were just, they were students. So they were just messing around with techniques they learned in class. So we did get practice there too. Okay. But I think uh, the, what I was talking about was right after college, maybe 1997 or something, where I was recording a lot in a few studios that producers had. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't want to waste two inch tape. So, you know, they would ask you to play a song and you'd get it. And they'd be like, cool. And I'm like, I think I could do it better to like, are you sure? Because I'm going to tape over the last one if you want to do it again. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting to me because in my, my college experience, it's like the recording. There were definitely some studios around. But I think the cultural difference probably between being in, in North Texas and Miami, the, you know, there was no pop sessions unless you had a band. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And I do remember vaguely going to a friend's garage with a band I was in and recording there. But the idea of recording when I was in school was not really, it wasn't even really in my mind. Mm. I mean, it was just like about playing and playing out. And that's Mm -hmm. practicing and playing out. There is an element to being a drummer where it's just fun to play the drums and not have to worry about anything else. I mean, there's so much when it comes to drumming that is just like getting your technique together and getting songs together and all that stuff that really adding on the whole idea of tuning and microphones and yeah, what being, does your snare sound like i mean it yeah really- being a being a session guy is a whole other skill set that is sometimes overwhelming in the beginning um but if you have that kind of macro vision of drumming like as an entire like rhythmic delivery service or something lame like that but basically like it's like that's on my business card man you can't use that <laughs> But if you think like I have to, not only do I have to be a drummer and have drums, but I also have to get it to an audience somehow. I either have to play a live show or I have to play on a, on a recording that's going to get to people's ears. And then you, you think about that whole process, then it makes a little more sense. And, and uh, you kind of learn the different stages and you get familiar with each stage, like the recording, the mixing, everything. And um, it was a lot harder in the, in the past to have experience in all of those stages. Uh, and now, as you can see, we're both sitting in our studios. It gets a little easier over each generation to kind of dabble in each um, element of the process. Right. So you, well, let me remember correctly, you moved to L.A. in 2001. 2002 or 2004 really mm-hmm. yeah and then uh when i moved to la you were one of the first people i called and i because i didn't know that many people here but i knew you and you're like hey man come over i have a studio we'll we'll, we'll hang so that was your old house not this one that was in a garage but i remember that was totally nice for me to be pretty new to the scene i mean weeks in la and you're like come over let's hang and I uh, thought that was, uh, you know, a nice display of not only you as a person and a confident drummer and generous person, but also just the L.A. music scene in general is, wasn't as, um, like, competitively evil as I imagined it would be. It was very open and warm and generous. And I'm like, wow, this is really nice, you know. Right. And it, I feel like it's getting more and more isolated. Right. Over the over the years, um, music and music making and music hanging and um, yeah, yeah, that reminds me. When I did live in Miami, I ha- I rented a house with a guitarist named Adam Zimmon, who you're friends with. We we were roommates for eight years, and we had this gigantic house that we paid hardly any money for. It was like ridiculous, right. and we we basically created the entire back of the house was just a music room, which had a recording studio, you know, makeshift recording studio, but it was also a rehearsal room with a PA and every, you know, every instrument you needed to jam. So it was just like, you can just come over and we could jam, rehearse, record, write, whatever. It was this kind of music den (laughs) that you, that was, that we don't have the space in LA to make something like that. So when did you move into that house with, with Adam? What year was that? So, um, 
I became friends with Adam around 1995. And then we were roommates, I think, in 96 or 7. Okay. So you and we had to kind of like collect gear then. Yeah. Because fortunately at the time, we had an extremely low overhead. You know, we were both, both bachelors and we were working a lot in Miami. So we would just make money and then we'd get out like a Sweetwater catalog and just circle things. Oh, wow. <laughs> collectively we'd be like hey maybe we should get a good microphone or maybe we should get some pa speakers or maybe we should get you know okay and we just built gear and, and like so what was your first uh thing that you were recording through was it like um i'm trying to remember there was that roland digital yeah i'm going to show you uh, so i'm going to get pull out some photos then right. so i did this because you were like hey let's talk about old gear so, and I like old gear. So, old, <laughs> old. This was one of those four tracks that I had in high school. This is a okay. Yamaha MT100. Okay. So, it's one of those things. If you've never seen any of this stuff before, I'm uh, like if you're on the younger side of this uh, generation, you have a little cassette recorder and uh, four volume faders. So, you can do four tracks and you can bounce and combine and stuff like that. But, um, I had, then I got this one. This is a Tascam 244, right. which you can't see because of the photo got cropped, but there's VU meters here and everything. This thing I still have, and it sounds great. And drums sound great through this, surprisingly. It's just, and, I, and there's, I've done demos on this and recordings that are actually on albums because it sounded so good. We didn't recreate it. Like wow. we just kept it. I just printed this. And then um, what I would do is I would run maybe uh, my drums through one of these, like a Mackie 1202 VLZ, which is just a mixer, yep. which has mini preamps up here. Yep. And, um, you know, so I would run maybe four, like a kick snare and stereo overheads through that. And then I would put it into one of these as a mono track or a stereo track or something like that. Yep. And then uh, when that wasn't enough, I upgraded to this thing, which is what you were talking about, the Roland VS880. That's what it is. You can, yep. have, uh, you can have like eight tracks and then um, you can you know, record to a hard disk. The thing had a hard disk in there and you can do bouncing. And again, I did recordings on this that are on like major label albums because they were like, well, sounds good. Why redo it? Yep. And um, it had like a natural, like it had an onboard compression that was great. You know how to use compression, I would just turn it on or off. <laughs> and right, it right. sounded great. So I'm like, I'm all that thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you, uh, did this get you thinking about like drum tones then? Or was it more like, hey, the just put the microphones up and I'm going to make sure I play the part and like. Definitely drum tones. Uh, a, a great, you've, I know you think this way. A lot of uh, good uh, advice for recording drummers is put up one microphone first and learn how to play with that. Yeah. If you can make drums sound good through one microphone, then you add another one and then you add another one because if your crashes are too loud or your rim shots too loud or something and, or your tom fills are too soft or something, your internal balance is off and it's not going to record well. Yep. So I learned a lot about internal balance, uh, playing with minimal miking, like not bashing the crashes or, or what crashes I'm going to use. I'm going to use super thin ones, super heavy ones, bright, dark. Uh, if I'm going open hi-hat, am I doing that open hi-hat or am I doing that kind of sizzly open hi-hat thing? And uh, 
tuning a snare drum, sizes of toms, head choices, amount of muffling in a bass drum. You were thinking about this stuff in the late 90s? Oh, yeah. And it was only because I would be horrified with the sounds I was getting, and I was trying to figure out why it doesn't sound the way I want it to. That's, it was, amazing. That's amazing to me because, you know, I, my gear collection didn't even start until kind of the early 2000s. You know, I had like one kit and maybe, maybe two sets of cymbals, right? Mm-hmm. Like a couple snare drums, right? But it was like, I, you know, I was definitely thought about snare tone, but mm-hmm. the idea of changing cymbals and things like that didn't occur to me until much later, which obviously is the evolution of your recording experience, right? So, mm-hmm. you're, you know, I had friends that were running that stuff when I lived in a house in Van Nuys when I moved here in 96, 97, 98. But I still wasn't thinking that way. To me, it was like, get the part out, you know. So that's, that's amazing to me that you were thinking about that stuff way back then, you know. Yeah, and I don't think it was that I was an expert in any of those areas. I was just more um, confused as to why I couldn't get the sounds I wanted or, or get the sounds I was hearing. Like, how come my snare goes, pong? <laughs> and, and that snare I want goes, Zh. I'm like, what is, why does that go? Zh? And mine goes, pong. And I'm like, so I tried to figure it out over time, like, is it the microphone? Is it the tuning? Is it, is, is it the head or, you know, whatever. And um, doing a lot of reading. And back then I used to read a lot of modern drummers, which uh, would, would, guys would talk about the whatever they used on this recording and that recording. And I make note, oh, a lot of guys use this, whatever, this uh, microphone or a lot of guys use this snare drum. And, but that can be misleading too, because, you know, you go down this, uh, uh, world of like getting what everyone else uses and it doesn't sound right you know you can't just buy stuff that other people use expecting it to sound that way it doesn't really work that way yeah Yeah, that's yeah exactly that's like having a a a digital pre uh you know uh like a saved sound like here's the chris lord algae snare drum and then you put it on yours and you're like (laughs) that doesn't sound like anything like it says it's going to sound like it's like Mm -hmm. right because everything else is different except that setting yeah. yeah, I'm I'm over the years, I've always been this way, but over the years, I've become more and more of a proponent of not chasing gear, whether it's like uh, a drum set or a cymbal or a snare drum or uh, a microphone or a preamp or anything. It's just just get tools that work for you and don't worry as much if it's, you know, the uh, the three thousand five hundred dollar thing that this guy uses on album or the the thing that these guys used on this classic recording in 1970 it's just we're not all in a position where we should just be collecting gear all the time it's more about getting tools to get your ideas out you know so that could be done expensively or cheaply and uh, i've been through processes of buying gear just because i read someone recommending it and it i I've learned over and over again, it doesn't really help that much. It's more just get things that you need when you need them. Right. Like I need a piccolo snare drum. I'm going to get one. I'm not going to get one because everyone told me I need one. I'm going to get one because I feel right now that's the sound I'm looking for. That's the, the response I want right now this year. Right. You know, and, and um, it's the same thing with microphones. You can go down, you can have 
dozens and dozens of microphones and never be entirely happy, you know, uh, or never, never have the, the full collection. So just get the ones you need at that time to complete the projects you need to do. If you need four mics, eight mics, you know, you know, something for your kick, something for your snare, something for your overhead, something for your toms. And then you slowly over time say, Hmm, I don't really love my kick mic, you know, or, and, but don't just go out and spend, you know, 15 grand because you read somewhere that that's what everyone uses. Cause it's not going to help that much. So are there, are there some recordings, you know, you said some of those early recordings made it onto records. Are there some that you're still pretty sonically happy with? You know, did anything survive, uh, you know, like that you're like, eh, it was pretty good for what I was doing then. You know what? I, I mean, I don't go back and listen to anything, but I'm pretty sure I would feel like a more of like a happy nostalgia as opposed to a wincing like, oh, my God, what were you thinking? Because you know, again, I'm not. I I accept that my myself in 1995 is different than the, my 2001 version of myself and whatever. It's all a process. So, I do have a funny story about that. Is that um, I once had a meeting with a producer, and he wanted to for me to bring. He wanted to use me on a couple recordings, but he wanted to meet me first. I'm like, cool, no problem. And he was like, can you bring over some? examples of some stuff you've done i'm like okay so um this back when cds were around i made it i burned a cd of like eight tracks that i had played on over the last couple years and i brought it and went to a studio he put in the cd he goes let me hear what you got you know and i played him some major label recordings i did some things that were done in really enormous like hit factories and things like that and then the last song was something I had done at home for a friend's band on that VS 880 with four microphones uh, through a Mackie 1202 VLZ into that stereo drums. And when that song came on, he's like, whoa, now this is the one. I love this. You know, that's a real drum sound. He goes, we got to do something like that. And I was like, oh, that's the one I did at home in my back patio with, you know, with like, you know, a Shure SM57 and whatever. But in his mind, it's like all the expensive things and all the fancy mastered stuff sounded kind of boring. And the one thing I did, like the uh, do-it-yourself version, was the one that jumped out. So it made me say that it's not the it's not the price tag, you know, on on the recordings that makes a big difference, you know. It's the vibe. It had the vibe. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. Like it's why I like reading that. Um, what's the uh, um, spacing right now the name of that magazine the tape op tape op yeah i love reading tape op because it, it kind of champions the idea of like it doesn't have to be super expensive to be great you know totally totally yeah i mean that's yeah my my gear buying stopped a long time ago my audio gear buying i should say well my drum buying gear too and it got to the point where i was like man if i can't do it with what i have it ain't going to happen, you know? And I, I think I've even gone backwards in a certain way where like, if I can use less mics, I will. You mm-hmm. know? I usually get permission from a client like, hey, can I do this with less? Because I think it'll sound better that way. But the mm-hmm. idea of actually using less and trying to capture that vibe and the sound is is like the thing as opposed to like, yeah, you don't really need all these. I mean, I'll, get, I'll send you all the mics, but like, I'm going to use four of these. Yeah. Out of the 12. Yeah. 
that are happening. Yeah, and that's that takes confidence as a drummer and engineer to be able to say, I can give you everything you need with only four mics. You know, you don't need the the bottom hi hat mic or whatever. You know, you don't need everything. You know, <laughs> are you doing that these days? <laughs> it's like, like people will mic everything, top right. and bottom ride. You need yeah. two ride mics, really? Yeah. Uh, the the the, t the two tom thing i've never top and bottom tom thing i've it's always frightened me i don't have enough mic pre's to do it anyway but yeah. the idea of that with phase and tone has always scared the crap out of me i'm like i'm not even gonna attempt that even though i'm sure it's very valid for certain types of recording mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what that's one thing that's i think uh cool about um your approach to drumming which i think you're about a mile ahead of me in this department is you're really much better at nailing drum tones from different eras. Like I can approximate. If someone says, give me that kind of stacks thing, I could do a stacks thing. Give me that, you know, whatever, uh, Eagles, Don Henley thing. I can do that. Or I'm thinking more of like a nineties rock thing. I can do that. But I feel like you've actually kind of studied a little more of what goes into making that uh, drum sound that way. And I think that's pretty cool. Like you, um, you know, whatever the studios they used and the gear they used at the time and the drum tuning they used at the time. So you can get even closer to that. And, uh, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, thank you. First of all, thank you. I'm mm -hmm. not all of it. I, I know quite as well as you're talking about, but I mean, one, you know, one piece of advice that my friend Alex Gibson gave to me, and you may know him, he used to work at Henson Studios and he lives in, he lives in Florida now, great engineer. And I was just asking him like, hey man, how do I get better? And he was like, he said, well, I was specifically talking about, you know, I was thinking about tr trying to get into producing more. And I was like, I was like, man, but I don't know, you know, about how to record a guitar as well or vocalist or whatever. And he goes, what you should do is, you know, try to recreate a stone song like get together with your friends and try to just match those tones and like you know just do it for fun like and i was like oh that's a good idea so i never actually went down the full band route about that but then that, mm -hmm. that planted a seed with me where when i listened to like when the levy breaks i'm like okay they they did that with three microphones like i should be able to do that like, why can I, like, there's not that many elements involved besides a castle that I don't have, you know what I mean? So can I do this? Mm -hmm. And that's really what became kind of the challenge to me just to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and then those things and man, just such surprising things with EQ came out about that for me. I mean, not just that particular one, but any of those like, oh, I can crank something like 12 dB, like the high end on something okay i guess that's okay because now it sounds right mm -hmm. you know or cutting things out instead of adding whatever you know mm -hmm. um yeah so you know those things i mean i think it's just come from like obsessing you know what i mean just to have and and having the time to just sit here and go like i'm really gonna get i'm gonna spend four days and try to get this sound you know yeah and, and going uh, back and forth Again, I, we talk about the stages. You can also, if you like when the levee breaks, you can say, I, I want to learn how to play like Bonham. I want to learn how to play with that beat, and I want to learn how to play with that feel. And then you say, well, I want to learn how to get 
that drum tone? You know, what, what kind of Ludwigs was he using in that castle at that time? And then you could say, I want to also learn what effects were being used when recording it, what mics and, and how was it, you know, recorded and mastered. And yeah. <laughs> there's a lot into getting that sound other than just, you know, the, the player. It's the player, it's the drums, it's the mics, it's the engineer, it's everything. So you, if you really, really want to be a nerd, you can kind of study all of those elements. Right. And then you get even closer to that beat that you love so much, you know? And uh, I think a lot of people focus, you know, maybe 85, 90% on the drummer, drumming aspect of it. And, uh, and then a little bit on the gear, the tones, like, you know, how to get uh, whatever it is, 26, 28 inch bass drum with no hole in it, get that sounding good. But then there's also, like you said, what, how many mics, where was it recorded? What, what mics, what gear did it run through? Who engineered it? How did he EQ it and compress it? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah. like you have those epiphanies every now and then. I was obsessed with um, Chad Blake's drum sounds. And, um, Always. On all those, well, on everything he did, but especially the Los Lobos records and kind of that era. Yep. And um, I remember just out of the blue, I bought a bass DI and I bought one of those Sanzamp bass drivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had it for bass guitar because I had a mini studio in my house. So, yep, exactly. So I had that and, and, I, and just messing around one day, I ran a microphone through that and as a mono mic and played my drums just to see what it sounded like. And I'm like, this sounds like Chad Blake. Oh my God. And then and I asked someone, oh, that's because he uses Sansamps on the drums. He uses those Tech 21, um, you know, preamps to, to run his drums. I'm like, so I, I came at that backwards. I was just fooling around with guitar pedals. Right. And then I'm like, this sounds not the same, but it's got that sound that I like, that element. And, and I had to ask people and they're like, oh, yeah, he does it. A, his thing is a version of what you're doing, a better version of what you're doing. But Exactly. Yeah. Do you think there's a piece of gear and this doesn't that's been the most valuable to you? And that doesn't it doesn't mean price. But if you if you really think about like, OK, if if I hadn't owned that one thing, I wouldn't be doing sitting in your room or doing what you're doing right now. Good question. Um, man, I, I can't think of one piece of gear. That VS880, I did a lot with that machine. Mm-hmm. And, and that was what made me say I need to upgrade because I've, I'm obviously maxing out what I can do on this machine. Right. So, and then I, I moved to a computer-based software at that point. I right. got a, a Mac. Uh, oh, let me just show you a photo. I got, <laughs> I got a... Um, one of these guys when it came out, this iMac uh, DV special, whatever it's called. Yep. And I got this program. This is uh, Opcode Studio Vision. Oh, wow. It doesn't even exist anymore. And you can. That was pre Digio One, kind of, or. Yeah. You know? That was yeah. right before the Digio One came out. Yeah. So this was like, uh, this was, there was like this and like Digital Performer. Mm hmm. And, um, yeah, so I, um, yeah, I, I got basically a computer setup that was a computer and a, 
you know, a couple of devices, a MIDI setup, so I can program, I can program tracks and I can record a little bit of audio, just a little bit of audio, like maybe a lead vocal track or something, and I can mix it all together and bounce it down. And so uh, that's basically the infantile stage of what I do now, which is a computer where you can mix audio and virtual instruments and MIDI programming and everything. So it was probably that, that transition from using that VS-880 and recording tons of projects I was doing, like bands and demos and songwriting. So let's talk about your room. Um, so you moved to LA in 2004. Did you, did you have a place to record immediately? Was that, was that like a thing where you're like, I need a place to record when I move there? Tell me about the evolution of, of your space. Yeah, I've always been like, uh, have this kind of, kind of 360, you know, idea where I need to be able to practice. I need to be able to record. I need to be able to rehearse. I need to do all these things. I don't want to uh, have any of those elements missing from what I'm doing. So um, when I moved to LA, the first thing I did was I rented a house in North Hollywood that had a lot of space in it, but no soundproofing. Mm-hmm. So I did have a one bedroom. It was a house with three bedrooms. So one bedroom was to sleep in. One was like a control room and one was a drum room. And uh, I did have the cops come quite a few times to knock on the door and say, hey, man, you got to knock it off. The, the, the neighbors are complaining. Yeah. I'm like, but I put up, I put egg foam up on the window. They're like, dude, it's, it's so loud out here. <laughs> so that, that made me say, like, I need to buy a place right. and soundproof it because I was renting a home at the time. So then in 2000, uh, I guess, December 2005, I bought a house that had a guest house on the property. And I, I, I factored into the purchasing of the house and I'm going to have to immediately also soundproof a room. Right. So I hired an, uh, a studio builder to take this room and tear it down to the studs and rebuild it. So it was, it basically cut out about 90% of the, tone escaping um and uh now i can play at two in the morning and no cops right so that was huge for me it's it's big enough where i could have a rehearsal of a trio here but i often don't do that um but it's more more my place to either practice or record drums and it's set up and kind of left that way the mics are always set up um even the preamp settings are kind of left where they are unless I have to do something dramatically different, like a brush session or something. But um, yeah, it's soundproof uh, as far as like sound treated, I should say, like, you know, with all the fiberglass panels and, and angled walls and ceiling and everything. But, um, and this was, yeah, I, I moved in here, I guess, Christmas of 2005. And I think it was maybe built by about a year later we finished. Okay. And then did you have most of your audio gear already? Or did that come once it was built? You're like, oh, now I think I I could use this and I could use this. And yeah, I think uh, like we were saying, uh, uh, going with less, I think I had more before I moved here. And I I actually slimmed down. Oh, wow. Down and improved. Wow. I definitely, I mean, back when I was in Miami, I had just like, just piles of gear <laughs> just that I couldn't fit anywhere. It was just, it was so the, 
I guess it's that thing of being in your early 20s and having jobs and not having any overhead. So right. all I would do is just buy, I guess I'll buy an MPC 2000. Right. I guess I'll buy this thing. I, I see everyone has a Moog. I'll buy a Moog, you know? <laughs> it, was, it was weird. I mean, and then you get married and have kids and move to a city where things are more expensive. You're like, I guess I don't need any of this stuff. I'm, so you just start getting rid of stuff. And, and then I also, I also learned that gear can be a distraction. So if you have too many options, you're never going to get anything done. So I'd rather just narrow it down to things that actually allow me to get things done very efficiently and productively. So I love getting rid of gear now. I don't like acquiring anything. Uh, I usually acquire something when something else breaks. My AD device breaks. I'm like, what are some good AD devices? So I get an Apollo instead or whatever. I upgrade when I need to. Uh, I don't buy things out of you know, compulsion or curiosity anymore, just out of necessity. And how often are you like changing drums, like full drum kit? Like, is it fairly minimal? Do you try to keep it, you know, it's like, okay, I can make this work for this sound. Or are you like, I'm tearing the whole thing down and setting up a new different kit? Yeah, it's, it, that, that is sometimes curiosity. Sometimes I want to hear what this drum set sounds like on this song. So I set it up if I have the time. Sometimes I don't have the time, so I just go with what I know will work. I know these toms will sound great on this song. Right. I usually get the song first, and I imagine a drum sound. Yep. So I'm like, oh, this, I'm hearing this. I hear something. Uh, and then I, I look at my collection of drums, and I say, what will get me? What kick? And I don't necessarily have to match the kick with the toms, with the snare. with me. I just say, what kick will get me the sound I want? What toms will get me the sound I want? What snare drum? And, you know... Half the time I'm right immediately and half the time I'm wrong. I'm like, ooh, these toms don't sound the way I thought they would on this song. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I should switch to these. Or this snare drum, I thought this was going to be this vibe, but it's not working. Right. I'm going to go to this vibe. Right. And that's another great thing about having a home studio and being the engineer and the producer all at the same time is you're by yourself. So you can audition a lot of stuff. And my normal way of getting to the place where I'm going to track is kind of boring for other people because people like people ask me, Hey, can I just video chat with you while you're doing the session? I'm like, it's boring. You can, but you're going to be watching me just move stuff around for hours right. because, because right. what I do is I basically set up the kit that I think will sound good on this song yep. and then I record it and then I listen to it and I'm like, Hmm. And I move some mics around and I change the tuning. I'm like, Hmm. And then I switch out the bass drum. I put another bass drum. I switch out the snare drum. I put in another snare drum. Right. Change the hi hats. Change the ride. Retune the rack tom until and I and I record every version of this. When I'm smart, I label everything. Sometimes I don't. But sometimes I'm like, this is the song with the acrylite. This is the song with the the DW uh, wood snare drum. This is the you know. And then um, oh, so you'll go back and AB. And then I AB all the stuff until I hear a drum sound that I'm like. Yeah, that's the one I want. And that's it's a combination. Okay. You know, it's, I, yeah, once I go like, no, that's not the one. I delete that take. I'm like, I'm out of here. No, I keep everything. Okay. Because sometimes I get further and further away where I'm, I'm like now lost. I'm like, <laughs> okay. I'm like, this. everything sounds like garbage to me. Let me go to the, the top again. I go to the first take. I'm like, that wasn't that bad after all. <laughs> you know, maybe I should go back to that idea of using the, 
whatever, the, the Noble and Cooley snare. That wasn't as awful as I thought it sounded in the beginning. You know, that sounds pretty good now because maybe you need perspective. So I'll, I'll do, I'll try out, you know, two bass drums, two sets of toms and six snare drums before I'm happy. But when I get the, the thing I like, then I lock it in. I'm like, that's the kit I'm using for this song. Right. And then I do like three takes of me playing that song. And then I usually, you know, pick the best of those three takes. But it's the auditioning process takes forever. And the actual playing the drums is like one, two, three. Right. So you're making sure, I love this point. You're making sure that the drums sound right. You're not doing this in Pro Tools. You're not trying to re-EQ or whatever. You're just like, the, the rack tom's not right. I'm changing out the rack tom. End of story. Well, this is, uh, this is a, a thing that, it just comes from, we talked about this like a, a little while ago, that what's strange is that you can put, I don't know, eight drummers together that are all really, really good friends and all record at home. And we all have completely different ways of doing things. Our workflows are different right. just because being a home recording drummer is a very solitary thing. Right. So we all come, with a, we come up with our own ways of doing things. Right. So I've come up with my own ways of doing things. And a lot of what I do has very little EQing or affecting. Okay. Uh, I, I, I developed a style, which is just, I want almost everything to come from the dry drums, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm transitioning into getting more and more into the affecting the drums, but that's after I record them. Sure. You know, and that's thanks to people like you and, uh, and Luke Adams and stuff uh, who, who I, I, I lean on for like things like, you know, like I went over Luke's, Luke's another great drummer friend of ours. And I went over his house once and we just talked about gating for like an hour because mm -hmm. I don't like gating. I don't like gating the drums, but gating sounds amazing. I just didn't like it. I didn't like doing it. I didn't like the sound I was getting and right. he showed me how you can do it and make it sound incredible. So now I'm all about gating, but I do that after, of course, I never do that. You don't either. I'm, I'm sure we don't do that to tape, but, um, well, you got to be really careful because it will kill it will kill your take or it will kill your sound if all of a sudden you're under the velocity yeah you're like that was the take <laughs> oh shit i played quieter and you know yeah so, you know, my process is i do everything with mic position drum tuning drum selection and playing that's where i get the majority of my takes from and then when i'm done and i'm super happy with the take then I put on my engineering hat and I sit down, and I start to fiddle. Yep. And that's a newer thing for me. I used to send people just dry drums all the time. I said, you're the engineer, you deal with it. Right. But now, because I'm a little more curious and more interested in the engineering side of drumming, the, the mixing engineering, not the recording engineer, the mixing engineering side of it, I'm into hearing what these plugins do to drums. And, and it's helping me understand even more like how to get the finished sound that I want. Yeah. Like uh, bus compression is cool and uh, you know, parallel compression is cool. And I thought everything was just either you throw something on the snare or you take it off the snare. But now I realize you can, the way you combine mics and you know, compress groupings is different also. And mm -hmm. it's very fascinating to me, you know, yeah. what that can do to your drum sound. Yeah. So again, my process normally when I'm recording for someone is I get the song, I learn the song. We, we talked about all the auditioning and recording and stuff. I get it all down to where I'm ready to send it to somebody. And at that point, I usually send them an MP3 bounce. And I say, here you go. 
here's your masterpiece with my drums added to it. Are you happy? <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, in nine times out of 10, they're like, dude, thank you. And sometimes like, love it. Can you do a different fill going into the bridge that sound that mimics the guitar melody? And I'm like, oh yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I'll just either retake it or do a punch or something. And then, um, and then I prepare the drums and I, um, and I just send a Wii transfer file with all the files. And I'm like, there you go. That, that, that's your drum stuff. And, um, but, Sometimes they'll be like some a lot a lot of times I don't send the Pro Tools session I just send them the files, right? But sometimes they're like I really really want it want your panning and I'm like okay you like the way it sounds panned okay I'll send you my Pro Tools session or I really really want to know how you processed it mm-hmm. and there you therefore you can either send them the Pro Tools session the, so they can see what you're doing or you can like I know sometimes you bounce stems so you can say well this is what it sounds like as a stereo track you can either use this or you can copy this. And um, so that's why I decided to get a little more into the mixing engineering side of drumming is because now I sense more and more of that happening where people aren't like, like your grade A famous mixing engineers doing stuff. This is people doing records in their bedrooms and they don't know how to deal with 12 mics of drums. Right. So maybe you can help them. Right, by right. either compressing the things that are supposed to be compressed or bouncing the things and stemming the things that, are, that should be, or because it's not going to sound as good as the day that you sent it to them. They're just going to do a, a worse job than you do. And you're like, I should probably help them with this yep. because I don't, in the, I don't want it to sound bad in the end either. So maybe I'll help them by pre-mixing it for them in some way. So that's why I started getting into that. Um, you print a track from that, from them of your mix. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'll I'll just again. Sometimes I just send them the the MP3 of the full mix of the song and my individual tracks. And but and then if I say, oh, they might need some help, maybe I'll print the drums by themselves with the effects on them. If they still need help, maybe I'll print the 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 individual tracks with the effects on them. So I'm like, this is the room mics with the stuff on it, with the the icing, right? And um. It all depends on, like you said, it depends on who you're sending it to. And you, you start to learn that. Some engineers, they're like, I want everything dry because I'm going to do everything because I'm an expert. Right, like, right. great, you're better than I am. Right, and other right. guys are like, dude, I, I would have no idea how to, you know, mix eight or 16 tracks of drums. Can you do it for me? Yep. So then you do it for them and they just drop it in and then they're happy. How many mics are you usually recording? Like, what's, let's say, what's the maximum number of mics you'll record? As opposed to I'm set up to do 16. Okay. And do you do that all the time? Do you do 16? Yeah. Usually I do 16 all the time. Because, okay. uh, um, well, be, for a number of reasons. Because I like three toms. So I have two floor toms. Sure. So that's one reason. I, I know uh, you normally play a four-piece kit, I think. So I normally play a five-piece kit. Uh, so there's that. Um, so, but if I were to run it down nerd wise, uh, what I'm doing is at the moment, I'm doing three kick drum mics. Yep. That is inside the hole, outside the hole, facing the head and a sub. So okay. that I mean, three mics on your kick, you're already going overboard. But I do that because I have the ability. Yeah. So I could do that with one kick mic. I do three snare mics, which is also overkill. Okay. But top mic, bottom mic, and then I make the sides of the snare shell. For every track, you do that, no matter what. 
for every track and I will always mute it if it doesn't work. Sure. Okay. Record it, it's there. And then when I'm sending it, I'm like, there is no need for all of this stuff. And I'll just send them only eight of them. But okay. I record like three snare mics, three kick mics. I have tops of three toms. So that's tom one, two, and three. I have a hi-hat mic. I have stereo overheads that are right over the cymbals. Mm-hmm. I have stereo room. Okay. And, and then I have a mono mic. That's uh, it's not the mono in between the overheads like we were talking about you and I about a month ago, but it's the kind that's kind of in front of the bass drum, maybe four feet high, like that that mono mic. Sometimes it can be closer where it's like floating over the bass drum shell. So you so, move that you move that around for the particular sound. Usually I move it around with, you know what it is? It's usually how much ride symbol I want because that mic gets a lot of ride symbol. So I'm like, oh, this is too much ride, and I move it back a little bit. Right. If I want a lot of kick snare interaction, I don't play ride on that song. I'll move it closer to that space that's kind of bet- like near the bass drum shell and the rack tom and the that right. magic spot that people use. And then right now, that left me with one extra mic input. So right now, there's a bullet mic on the floor, right by the batter side of the bass drum. Yep, and that gets a nice little crunchy loop sound. Before that, I was using, I, there's a bathroom over there. I was miking up the bathroom yep. and getting this weird, like, Wendy Levy breaks really far away sound. But I didn't, you know, I, I loved it for a while. And then I got bored with that. I'm like, is that really useful? <laughs> I think a lot of this stuff is phases too. Like you use it for six months and then you either, you kind of fall into something new, like, oh, somebody tried that. I want to try that. And then you stick with that or you get tired of it or you're like, yeah, or maybe you go back and listen to something. Sometimes I'll go back to what I did two years ago for a reference or something. And then I go like, like <laughs> oh, man, thank God I'm, I, it's better now. You know what I mean? Or what was that that yeah, I did? I, it's good that we're getting better, that you and I are getting better. I think I got <laughs> Well, I could do That's what I tell myself anyway. I've started doing something which uh, uh, I started a couple of years ago, but I think it helps a lot is say I'm sending wave files to someone. I'm really specific with what I name each wave file now. Mm-hmm. For instance, if, uh, if I do say I do 12 tracks of drums, those are called D period and then whatever it is. So they, they start with a prefix of an initial, like D, period, hi-hat, left. So they know that also the, the panning perspective. Oh, wow. So if I have a stereo overhead left, stereo overhead right, they know that the hi-hat is also going to be coming out of the left side. Okay. So, so they don't put the hi-hat on the other side thinking that it's, you know, audience perspective. And then the, the hi-hat and the, and, the, and the overhead are doing that, you know. So I label in the, in the, in the track what instrument, like, what group of instruments is going to be? This is your drums, mm-hmm. and this is the panning of it, the uh, the bottom snare or whatever. And then if I do overdubs, I label the overdubs as a like a different group. If I do tambourines and and uh, shakers and stuff, I call P period shaker, P period uh, tambourine. So when they do a batch dump into their uh, computer everything alphabetizes into groups. So they get all the drums in in a group of tracks and then all the percussion in a group of tracks. And then if I do more overdubs, maybe I'll go OD period marching snare, OD period um, boomy 
concert bass drum or whatever. So though they don't think the bass drum and the snare drum are part of the drum set track and they try to mix it in there somehow. They, so that's something I learned. And I think that helps a lot. I don't, I've never talked with anyone else about that. If you do something similar, but it, it helps me when I do a lot of tracks and, and a lot of them are overdubs that when they just do a, like an import audio, it goes and lines up. Yeah. So yeah. kind of, they don't have to figure out like, what is this thing called auxiliary snare? What is that? You know, it just, they know immediately where it's going to go. Another thing I do is I also have learned, I learned this from an engineer a long time ago, which I don't know if you feel this way or not, but he taught me that if you can send your drums and they sound good in unity, that's going to be a lot better than having everyone have to drop certain tracks, 12 dB to make it sound good. Like I used to record my, I don't know, maybe my room mics and my, hi-hat mic and my bottom snare mic, they were all at the same level as my kick mic and everything else because I wanted to see a proper level mm -hmm. as a waveform. So I knew I was, you know, I had validation. It's everything's being recorded properly. Mm -hmm. But then you put, you put everything on, it's like, and you have to duck a lot of tracks. Right. So this engineer says, don't be afraid to take that hi-hat mic and make it like super small because you're not going to want a lot of that. Um, and so I have everything kind of, in my gain staging and, and in my preamps where some tracks don't look loud. Right. I'm now confident doing that because maybe it's because it's a digital platform, but uh, that when I send people tracks, they don't have to reach for the volume knobs on anything. It's all going to sound good already. And then, um, you know, they can tweak as they go. Yeah. We were talking the other day, you and I about phase and I, and, and you said, Oh, that'd be an interesting thing to talk about, which is that like, I was watching one of your videos from sticks and wires and you were talking about how you have a plug in and you often audition the phase button to see what sounds good. And sometimes even out of phase actually sounds good and in phase doesn't and you lose something. And I was saying, I was watching and saying, maybe I should do that more often because <laughs> what I do is I normally listen to the tracks and I just flip I, actually, I go into audio suite and choose the um, one of the invert, invert uh, option. I just flip audio tracks back and forth until mm -hmm. I think they sound good. And I zoom in sometimes and stare at the sine waves. But, um, but I'll, I'll definitely flip things back and forth that way and not use the plugin. And I'm thinking maybe the plugin's probably a quicker way to do that. <laughs> what about different plugins delaying your tracks different amounts? Mm -hmm. uh, like I found that I'm getting much better at knowing how to deal with this. But when I first started using lots of different plugins, say you had a, uh, a top and bottom snare mic or two kick mics and you throw a plugin on one kick mic. Now that kick mic is out of, is, is out of sync with the other kick mic. Right. So, so what I've learned is I'm good. If I'm going to put anything on one mic, I put it on the other one, even if it's bypassed. Right. Exactly. But if I have two snare mics or three snare mics and I want to put a, a decapitator on the top of the snare mic, I put it on all three and then I bypass the other two. So now they're actually basically delayed conversation the same way. Yeah. You have to do that? Totally. I do that. Um, yes. And, and conversely, um, Eric Valentine taught me one thing where you can actually actually with like kick mics if they're in a similar frequency you actually delay one by somewhere between eight and 15 milliseconds and it actually opens the sound up so the transients aren't landing at the same time mm. because they're fighting each other so you delay one and all of a sudden it totally opens the sound up he showed me that and i was like oh 
you know, uh, I thought that was that was amazing. So yes, sometimes that delay compensation thing totally needs to happen where you, you know, you're putting the decapitator on all three tracks or whatever. And then sometimes it's like opposite. Some it, it, it actually opens up the sound in a, in a very strange way. Yeah. yeah I've noticed like something like it's that kind of thing where uh, like the late I've heard a lot of friends say the bypass button is your friend because <laughs> the best way to figure out what works and what doesn't work is to try it, bypass it, try it, bypass it. And I found a lot of times I'm, oh, I've read that people do this. I've read that people do this. I've read it. And every time I do it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, it's not just a matter of throwing plugins on because you read someone did it. You have to know how to do it. Yeah. You have to know, you know how to do it properly, the settings, whatever. And so I've learned through experience how to get a much better drum sound with a ton of plugins on there. At first it was either the dry drums sound good and the plugin drums sound all messed up. <laughs> so, but now I've, I've gotten to the point where I, I understand what each one's doing to the sound and how it's improving it or detracting from what it, what it used to be. And right. but that's a learning curve. Let me tell you a story about, um, you know how there's an, you know how like they have those classic sessions that go around these bootleg sessions that people do where they uh you'll often like someone say hey dude i have uh i have a couple queen songs on pro tools and, and you can you get together and you can listen to them and there's the marvin gay ones and there's so many now and i guess they come from people backing up and and like doing libraries of old tapes or something and they just kind of go around as this this bootleg thing i heard a bob marley one and i've been i was always fascinated with how to get that uh that drum sound you know this and and kaya those sounds um yeah i guess it was like i can't remember which song it was now but it was um yeah obviously carlton carlton barrett and um and um that snare that snare is like it sounds like a timbali but it wasn't a timbali because they everything i said is like no it's it's a ludwig uh superphonic really what i've been trying to figure out for years <laughs> oh, okay i got it yeah okay so, because uh, I had the, uh, I'm like, you know what? Let me hear it. And I'm hearing the drums, and obviously everything all together sounds like a Bob Marley recording. I'm like, can I just hear the drums? I'm listening to the drums. I'm like, can I just hear the mics? And there's only like three mics in this whatever session that they have, and it's, it could be like stereo overhead and snare. And you listen to stereo overhead, and it sounds like a drum set, right? And then there's a snare mic that is just distorted beyond belief. Like, so every time he hears a doom, you know, that kind of like, yeah, that blending in. So it's the close mic that is just pulverized, that is giving you that awesome mix with the, with the regular natural drum sound that is jumping out like that, which is why those rim clicks and those snare drum rim shot fills sound so much like a timbali. Yeah, because there's still a snare sound in there, mm -hmm. but it's way thinner than like a snare. And like I've taken my superphonic and pinged it as high as I possibly can. I'm like, it can't go any higher. And it still doesn't seem, it's not there. I think what you do is you have to take a separate like snare top mic and just 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 bury it in a in a sans amp or a something 
Right. And, and then you blend that in. And I think that is, I mean, that's what it sounded like to me, how they got that classic reggae drum sound that everyone does with a timbali now. Right. That's what it is. That's interesting because the hi-hats, especially on Exodus, the whole record, are like the high end on that. Those things are like sizzling. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, you, to get away with that is pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously the hi hat in those rhythms is like one of the most important things. But the tone of those things is like, and that's probably exactly where that's coming from. It's that snare mm-hmm. mic that's just like mm-hmm. gunned. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've um, covered a few things. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh this is a pleasure. This is awesome. Yeah. For the, anyone who doesn't know what's going it's on, Carter, man, at this point, you know. Uh, yeah, Blair uh, said, you know, we're, we're, uh, Blair and I are really good friends, but he said, hey, why don't we do a video chat about uh, home studios? I'm like, sounds great. I got nothing to do this week. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's awesome. I, 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 we should do this every day. Well, I don't know if everyone's going to listen to it all the time, but we will definitely do it some more. <laughs> all right, man. Well, have a great day. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. All right, dude. We'll we'll have coffee soon. Yeah. Let's do it. Right on.